Hello, and welcome to the podcast, the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. A podcast for bicycle mechanics of all experience levels, from entry-level techs to folks who want to learn more about being a bicycle mechanic to professional mechanics, including lead shop techs, race mechanics, and everyone in between. My name is Matt Taini, and I will be your host for this journey. A little about me first. I've been in the cycling industry as a tech for about 35 years now. My journey began at a local bike shop in Half Moon Bay, California. Before I started working at the shop in Half Moon Bay, I bought a bike from a friend who had just returned from a bike tour in New Zealand and sold me a bike for 120 bucks. Didn't have much money at the time. I was working in a restaurant. Um, basically paid him 20 bucks every time I had a little bit of cash. And paid it off in a little bit, and when I got to go ride it for the first time, the bike was in uh, bad shape. Didn't really shift well. Uh, rear derailleur wasn't working at all. So I brought it to a local shop. Um, I had never been into a bike shop before. I, when I was younger, I did a lot of work on uh, on my own bike, kind of Franken-bike stuff as a little kid, you know, doing fork swaps after you bent one uh, off the jump that you made um, out of some wood next to the house, that kind of stuff, just kind of Franken-bike stuff. So I uh, finally went into the bike shop there um, and wanted them to take a look at the bike and uh, fix it up for me. And they had it ready for me in a couple days. I went and picked it up and it didn't, uh, still didn't work. So I was like, all right, well, I guess maybe I'll try and fix it myself. So I bought some parts uh, from an, uh, a catalog um, company, um, not an online store. It was a mail-in catalog. Of course, there was no online back then because I'm old. Um, so I, I ordered a rear derailleur, and when it arrived, I went ahead and read the directions that came with it, and I installed it myself. And it seemed to work. So I started riding that bike and um, got to know some of the, the, the guys at a bike shop uh, that I was talking about earlier in Half Moon Bay, the bicyclery, um, when I was riding uh, through a friend that I worked with and got to know them pretty well, um, having them work on my bike. And finally, I bought a new mountain bike, um, something a little bit better, bought a mongoose. Um, pretty excited about that at the time and uh, started riding even more. And then uh, I had a friend talk me into buying a road bike. So I bought a road bike and bought that one uh, through a catalog as well. Um, and eventually brought it into the shop in Half Moon Bay to have them work on it after I've been riding it a bit and uh, got to know them a little better. And then they kind of offered me a job to work there part-time. Uh, told them I didn't really know anything. They said, well, that's okay. That's, uh, that's the way we, we like it. We'll teach you how to do stuff. So got hired there and worked there for about five years um, until I met uh, a gentleman named uh, Wayne Culpepper. Wayne was an older guy. He was probably about uh, 20 years older than the owner of the shop, Rich, and his friend Doug uh, Hatfield, who also worked there as uh, his uh, head mechanic. Uh, so they knew Wayne uh, when they were little kids and they lived over in San Mateo. And they would go into a bike shop uh, near them, and Wayne was the uh, mechanic there. And uh, they got to know Wayne and uh, kind of kept in touch with him a little bit over the years, I guess. And and Wayne stopped by the shop one day, the bicyclery, and he had uh, 
race mechanics, a USCF race mechanics jacket on uh, with a patch, a race mechanics patch. And the jacket was super cool. And I was like, wow, who is this guy? This is kind of cool. He, uh, he had gone to the USCF and done the uh, mechanics clinic, uh, I think a year or two before. And he got to talking to Doug uh, Hatfield and mentioned it to Doug that uh, Doug should, should check it out. And Doug decided uh, to go ahead and start his own journey and uh, leave the shop a little a little while after that. And he went out to uh, Colorado to go to the race mechanics clinic himself. So shortly after Doug had departed uh, the bicyclery, he, um, Wayne, came to work at the bicyclery. And he kind of became my mentor. Um, he was my uh, Obi-Wan, if that helps. Uh, the, he was like the mentor who, who kind of puts you on track to your destiny or what it is you're supposed to do. Um, and uh, kind of like uh, Joseph Campbell in uh, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, um, it, was, uh, it was Wayne who was my, uh, my guiding light, so to speak, who kind of helped me realize that it was time to depart from my ordinary world, the bike shop employee. Um, my, uh, call to adventure came shortly after, uh, after Doug had, had gone away and worked at the USCF and he came back, um, and he looked real happy and he had been doing trips with the national team for about a year and he had started his own journey, as I mentioned before, to move to Colorado and to do that, he broke up with his girlfriend that he lived with and he moved to Colorado Springs, uh, to attend the, the, the USCF uh, Race Mechanics Clinic, uh, now known as the Bill Woodall Race Mechanics Clinic. And eventually he was able to uh, get a job um, at the uh, Olympic Training Center, um, kind of took over for a gentleman named uh, John Sepe, who was the manager of uh, the national, national team uh, tech support there in uh, Colorado Springs. So Doug and I, we kind of uh, got to talking and he uh, mentioned to me that, that there were, he needed some mechanics and there were going to be some opportunities in Colorado Springs um, to do some wrenching for the national team possibly. And he kind of didn't take much, but he kind of talked me into moving out there. So I saved up my money and which wasn't much and uh, packed up all that I owned and drove to uh Colorado Springs accompanied uh, by my friend Eric and we were following uh, Doug and his friend Aaron they were in a rental truck uh, with all of Doug's belongings in it since uh, he had spent his first season in Colorado living out of his van not down by the river but in various parking lots and uh, Cheyenne Canyon so the the Ford uh, F-150 truck that I was driving had an oil leak and uh, at one point we bought a case of oil to make it from uh California to Colorado by constantly topping off the oil. Um, I was uh, set to attend the USCF race, me race mechanics clinic uh, when I arrived. So um, getting there was, uh, was pretty important to get there and be able to be ready for that, get all moved into the house that, that Doug and I, uh, Doug had kind of set up for us. I remember the rent at the time was uh, $242.50 a month. And I had saved enough money for about two months rent and an extra hundred bucks for food to kind of uh, get by, uh, get by 
as long as I could before I could actually get a, a job. So, um, that was, uh, that was kind of my plan. So I attended the, the USCF race mechanics clinic and passed the test at the end and received my, my license. And, um, that was kind of a big accomplishment. I was pretty happy about that, but I still hadn't really landed a job yet. So I needed to do some volunteering, uh, at the Olympic training center there. We had lots of, uh, they would have lots of camps, um, developmental camps in, by now it was like November, uh, like December, January. So it was kind of uh, off season, but they were having camps and, uh, riders were coming in and, uh, I was volunteering to help out, uh, wrench on the bikes and follow them on training rides and did that for about, I think there were like three different camps that were probably at least a week long, each one. And basically I worked for free and, uh, my payment in the beginning was just getting a, uh, a meal card so I could go to the cafeteria, uh, at the Olympic training center and eat and, uh, kind of grab some, uh, Nutri-Grain bars at the time and kind of stick them on my pocket on the way out. So I'd have something to eat for dinner. And, uh, it was, uh, I don't remember, uh, being, uh, bummed out that I didn't have money cause I was, it was pretty exciting what I was doing, uh, working at the training center and working these camps and kind of getting to know my way around the training center and getting to know some of the other staff and, um, kind of, uh, living in a different state for the first time. That was very, uh, very cool. So kind of, uh, went on from there, um, to, uh, meet the gentleman, uh, uh, Chris Carmichael and, uh, and Yuri Manus. They were kind of the guys in charge of the men's, uh, national team. They had, um, they had switched positions recently and Chris was the, the, the lead director and Yuri was the men's road coach. So I was trying to get on as the men's, uh, mechanic, um, and I wasn't sure it was going to happen for a while. It seemed like Yuri wasn't really that interested in uh, having me go on any of the trips. But um, in the end, uh, Chris Carmichael kind of helped me out and talked to him. And, and I ended up uh, getting the job to be the men's uh, road uh, race mechanic for the U.S. national team, which was uh, pretty cool. So I was all set to make uh, my, at the time, I think it was uh, $55 a day. And... Um, to me, that was great. That would mean I would have some money. I could pay rent and I could stick around and go on some trips with the national team, uh, which I did. So, um, things were going pretty well. I was pretty darn happy. So when it was all said and done, I worked for the national U S national team for two seasons. Um, had a lot of fun, traveled all over the world. It was a, a great experience. Uh, learned a lot as a mechanic. Um, just like when you, I got my race mechanics license, but I really uh, didn't didn't really know what I was doing uh, too well at first. Um, definitely improved quite a bit over those first two years um, and kind of uh, had a really good time and then finally moved back to California and I ended up... Uh, receiving a call when I went back to the shop, the bicycle re, uh, thought I was pretty much done after two seasons. And I received a call from Dave Latiri, the, uh, Chevrolet LA Sheriff's, uh, team director down there in Santa Barbara and asked me if I wanted to come work for him. 
And uh, I said, why not? So I moved to Santa Barbara and I worked for uh, the Chevrolet LA Sheriff cycling team for two seasons. And then after that, uh, I took, I had to take a couple years off. We kind of lost our sponsorship there with the team. Um, went to work for Wheelsmith for a little while in Palo Alto for a year, and then went back to the bicycle reef for another year. And then uh, received a phone call from uh, one of my really good friends, Dave uh, Pitts, who worked for the Saturn cycling team and said, hey, why don't you come work with us? Um, you don't have to live in Wisconsin, but uh, we need some more mechanics. So I was like, why not go back on the road? So I went back on the road for a couple more years. Uh, by then it was 1999 and 2000. Um, after two years uh, with Saturn cycling team, I kind of decided it was time to, to hang up the on the road deal and uh, kind of wanted to start a family. And um, I did, I uh, went, uh, took some time off after that, went to, uh, work at a big box retailer in a bike shop, uh, REI. Um, it was uh, pretty fun. They took really good care of me. I worked there for almost 20 years um, until uh, about a year ago. I called it quits, and here I am. I uh, wanted to start this podcast just to uh, talk a little bit about uh, being a bicycle mechanic and little bit uh, educate people on what it's like to be one and those of us that are bike mechanics hopefully I can offer some uh, some fun stories some funny stories some uh, and we can uh, share with each other you can let me know what you want to hear about um, what you don't want to hear about what you like uh, what you don't like why are you a mechanic Um, when did you know you wanted to be a mechanic a bicycle mechanic and uh, what do you like the most about it so that's why we're here So in our next uh, section here, I'd like to talk a little bit about, uh, I find it kind of interesting, bicycle history and how the bicycle came to be. And uh, I got this book a few years back. Um, it's Camp Ignolo, uh, 75 Years of Cycling Passion. Um, I do like Camp Ignola. Um, I know some people like Shimano, some like SRAM, some we always have reasons to like one or the other, but that's fine. So we're going we're gonna to read out of this book a little bit about the, how the bicycle came to be. Um, so in 1816, um, it's an idea born of a volcano. So the idea for the bicycle became solid reality in 1816, the year before the Tambora volcano in Indive- Indonesia had erupted, an explosion so massive and prolonged that within a few months, the quantity of volcanic ash in the atmosphere had caused global climate climactic changes, lowering temperatures by as much as five degrees Fahrenheit. The volcanic material absorbed so much solar radiation that in North America and Northern Europe, 1816 became known as the year without a summer. Spring frosts damaged crops. New England had blizzards in July. The lack of fodder killed off dramatic number, a dramatic number of horses at a time the most important means of transportation. George Stevenson's locomotive was still a few years in the future. The German Baron Karl Dres von Sauerbonn of Mannheim, grandson of the Grand Duke of Baden, was a kind of amateur inventor. His, His fervid imagination 
had already led to several inventions, including a vehicle for traveling underwater, a periscope, and a typewriter. In 1813, he had presented a four-wheeled car to Tsar Alexander, then visiting Baden. In that dramatic 1816, he, he sought to find a replacement for the horse. Not too many years earlier, in 1791, another noble, the French Count Mide de Sivrac, for his own amusement, had connected two wheels with a bar that he could sit on, thus push himself along with his feet. Much to the amused delight of his subjects, a small detail, Sivrex Selefier, as it was called, had no steering device. So unless the road ahead ran straight and Count always ended up in a ditch. It must be said that recent research in the story has revealed that Sivrex's invention may instead be nothing more than a fabrication put together by a French journalist who in the period of anti-German sentiment, sentiment following the French defeat at Sedan in 1870, tried with this story to establish French primacy over the, the detested Germans, at least in terms of the paternity of the bicycle. Indeed, many men and even entire civilizations contend for the paternity of the bicycle. From time to time, historians identify the bicycle's beginnings among the Sumerians, the, the Estrukians, and with everyone else, the Chinese, some, somewhat. See Leonardo da Vinci as a, bike tr as a bike's true father in the Codex Atlanticus. There, are, there is a sketch of a bicycle fitted with a chain drive, but by now it seems confirmed that this childish charcoal sketch was made by a workshop assistant, although it may be a copy of an original design by da Vinci himself. Dre's vehicle did not come to much. His wooden two-wheeled velocipede was pushed along with the feet and was equipped with both handlebar and saddle. In time of need, it could certainly have taken the place of a horse to cover certain distances, hence the boast that it saved feed. The Baron patented his invention in 1816 and began selling it. He called it the loaf machine, the, also known as running machine. Although it is best known as the Drazen and was nicknamed the Dandy Horse. It did not meet with great success. Even worse, Drays, who, despite his noble origins, was a favored supporter of democratic ideas, found himself in trouble during the period of monarch restoration and ended up exiled in Brazil. He was back in Europe after a few years, but in that short time, his invention had become outdated completely surpassed by the rise of the locomotive. Dres died in poverty in 1851. Of course, the effects of the year of the volcano faded. Horses once again prospered and the iron horse began chugging into its heyday. All things considered, no one wanted to think about climbing onto heavy, un unsteady, brakeless vehicles. Several decades had to pass before two-wheeled locomotion again intrigued the minds of inventors and mechanics. The second half of the 19th century was the age of positivism and the faith in progress of knowledge, science, and most of all, technology. As the Italian philosopher, historian Benedetto Croce wrote of European society of that period, concern for things moral and political have diminished, but in this place has arisen a new favor that was expressed in the tireless activity of industrial and commercial enterprises technical discoveries, increasingly powerful machines, geographic exploration, colonization, 
and economic exploration, exploitation in the tendency to give supremacy to scientific and practical studies, in the introduction and spreading of recreational activities and social games to what is called sport, bicycles and automobiles, boats and airships, boxing to football to skiing, all of which in various ways conspired to dedicate a great part of activities and interest to physical well-being and physical fitness. Many things were written against permitting running to become a passion, against the, the process of despiritualization, against letting sports destro destroy cultural ideas. The wind, however, was blowing in the opposite direction. It was no easy life for the pioneers of cycling. The French newspaper La Gaulois called cyclists wheeled imbeciles. There was also an expression bicycle face, meaning a, a face flattened by being crushed into the ground, a reference to what happened to those fearless fools who risked their lives on those, on those terrible early bicycles. The Catholic Curio prohibited priests from climbing aboard vehicles of that type, seen as a hardly dignified behavior. Certain municipalities banned their circulation in populated areas, considering them dangerous to public safety. And in most places, women were vehemently prohibited from riding bikes, considered morally unseemly behavior because of the scandalous posture, not to mention the inevitable exhibition of ankles. Even so, the spread of the bicycle seemed irresistible. The so-called silent revolution took the idea around the world, from France to England, Germany to United States, Russia to Australia. The bicycle became the steel horse. Not too surprisingly, the first races in the early 1870s took place on racetracks for horses and often involved horses. Which of the two was faster? It seems incredible. This is from a newspaper of, of 1871, following a race with velocipedes. That is on somewhat bad roads, one can ride a velocipede at speeds of one kilometer in three minutes, something that would be difficult to achieve even with a good horse. Anyone using nothing more than leg power could set off on the conquest of time and distance. Having established the basic truth, the effort was made to prove the bicycle was enormously reliable and strong. So it was in the early makers of bicycles with the support of newspapers began to organize long distance races. The pioneering period of sport cycling had begun. In 1891, saw the Bordeaux-Paris 572 kilometer and the Paris-Brie-Paris of more than 1,200. The latter was won by Frenchman Charles Charon in 71 hours. For three days and three nights, he raced without stopping, demonstrating to the astonished public that the human body, if suitably trained, can survive astonishing demands, and perhaps most of all, that his 22-kilogram Umber bicycle fitted with replaceable Michelin pneumatic tires was able to overcome any obstacle. From that moment on, Tarant became Napa Tarant, a nickname that elevated him to the ranks of national hero. As the popularity of bicycles grew, so did the manufacturers of bicycles against the panorama of industrial industrialization that having begun in Great Britain was rapidly expanding across Europe. The special sector devoted to bicycles and their components began to take shape and flower. Famous men of age, artists and writers fell in love with the bicycle. 
Alexandra Dumas and Jules Verne, Gustave Doré, Claude Debussy, Maurice Leblanc, creator and the character Arsène Lupin and Victor Hugo. Toulouse Lautrec agreed to design the advertising poster for the Simpson bicycle chain. Emilio Salgari paid homage to the new steel machine by writing a novel about it in 1895, to the South Pole by Velocipede. In 1899, right at the end of the decade, Pierre Giffard, director of the Daily Lavello, presented La Fin de Cheval, an essay in which he claimed that the end of the horse had arrived, replacing in all respects by the bicycle. Two years later, in 1901, Tullio Campagnolo was born. So in our next segment here, I would like to introduce uh, something I'd like to do on uh, most of my podcasts is uh, give you some stories from the road. Um, some of them will be from me, some will be from guests and, and uh, whatnot. So my first uh, story that I want to share is my first trip to Europe. Um, it, was in, it, it was going to Italy in 1993. So at this point, I had made it. I got the job after some uh, job shuffling at USA Cycling. After I had moved to Colorado Springs, um, uh, so when I first arrived um, at the Olympic Training Center, um, Yuri uh, Manis was in charge. He was the boss, and Chris Carmichael was the men's road coach. But in my time there, they swapped places um, shortly after I arrived. Um, and the, in the end, it was Yuri Manis and I on the road before I knew it. Um, I had worked uh, for long enough and worked now uh, enough free camps to get the job um, as the men's road uh, road mechanic. So my first trip would be to Italy for the Settimana Bergamasca, uh, an Italian stage race. It was in over my head for sure. Uh, I was a good mechanic, but this trip would require so much more. Um, I did have some time at training camp in uh, Bisbee, Arizona to get to know all of the racers and the other staff. Um, I was somehow in charge of the other staff members for our drive to Bisbee from Colorado Springs. I drove a, a Jeep with a trailer containing a motorcycle that I apparently didn't hook up properly. Thankfully, the, the safety chain uh, held up and we made it in one piece. Um, a stroke of luck, good luck, uh, the first of uh, a few throughout my uh, team mechanic career. Uh, we would leave in the team van every morning following the riders, what seemed like hours. Our Swanier Neil would drive and I would try to stay awake in the passenger seat. Um, every time we hit a climb, Yuri, who was riding with the racers, would uh, fall back and hold on to the, the van through the open window uh, on the passenger side. He would speak to us in broken English. Uh, Yuri was from Czechoslovakia. Um, I remember seeing a picture of him in his office back in Colorado Springs. Um, in the peace race uh, when he was in his prime. No helmet, no arrow uh, brake levers, uh, down tube shifters, probably a 42-53 in the front with probably like a 12-21 six-speed freewheel, uh, just hammering on some gravel road by himself. Um, it was a pretty cool picture. And Yuri had, uh, he had raced for the Czechoslovakian team. He was uh, on the team time trial in the 72 Olympics in Munich. So he had been around. Um, he had made it to the U.S. Uh, from the Eastern Bloc country and was now uh, the coach for the U.S. men's cycling road team. He was um, he was a no-nonsense kind of guy, uh, um, 
good at getting the team what we needed, no matter uh, where we were. Uh, I was pretty sure he didn't like me at first, and that was okay because I didn't really know uh, what the heck he was saying most of the time. Um, he kind of had a little bit of, of broken English he would speak. Um, so, you know, some of the things that he would say I, over the years, I found them pretty funny. Um, so he would say, uh, guys, listen. And uh, the translation of that was basically shut up and pay attention. Um, uh, departure, depart, that means we're leaving now. Uh, another one uh, was, uh, never said this one to me, but I heard it. He said, uh, big problems with the mat. And uh, that basically meant that the bikes weren't clean enough uh, early on in my career. Um, he who gets there first, he goes. Uh, that's uh, his answer to Italian intersection rules. When I asked him uh, at an uncontrolled intersection in Italy, I said, well, who has the right of way? He who gets there first, he goes. Uh, another famous quote at the end of a trip, uh, he would say something to the effect of, uh, bring everything that is Federation here. Basically meant we're packing up to go home. Um, one of my favorite quotes of all time uh, was, uh, you will do what you will do and you will not do what you will not do, which basically meant do it or don't do it. Um, <laughs> pretty funny. So by the time we were in uh, Yuma, Arizona to do a few races, I had figured out uh, how to tell what he was saying. And I found myself translating his uh, broken English for anyone who didn't understand, like if we we're at a restaurant or whatever. Um, it was a breakthrough for our uh, working relationship um, at the time. In that first season, uh, other staff members changed often from trip to trip, but Yuri and myself were the constant. So my trip to Europe, as I said, was to Italy for the first stage race um, in and around Bergamo. Um, we arrived at the Milan airport and Yuri had landed a day ahead of us to get the vans we would be using for our three week stay. Uh, one was a minivan, it was pretty fast, um, and the other was a Fiat cargo van uh, with three on the tree. We loaded up and Yuri handed me the keys to the Fiat and said, follow me, we go now. Shit, here we go. Thank goodness I had learned how to drive on a stick uh, at a young age. So the clutch really wasn't a problem, it was just a little strange having the shifter on the steering column. The racers jumped in to the two vans and I recall Jeff Evanshine sitting next to me and asking, uh, have you ever driven in Europe before? Me, I said, I said, nope. Jeff said, I'm out of here. He jumped out like, uh, like the van was on fire and ran to the smaller van and, uh, in front in front of us that Yuri was driving. The guys that were left didn't seem to care. Um, I think it was uh, George Hencapi and Fred Rodriguez. They seemed uh, up for the adventure, although George seemed less excited about the drive ahead. Um, we drove for about two hours on the highway. I had the, the Fiat uh, gas pedal floored and would barely keep up on the hills. He would pull away and have to keep, keep it floored on the downhills to catch up. Needless to say, we made it okay and I was uh, equally stressed as I was excited. Um, being in Italy was amazing. Everything was different from what I had known my entire life. Um, a couple of days later, uh, I would have my first uh, caravan race experience um, in Europe. It was a one-day race, kind of a warm-up we were doing, uh, starting in Milan and finishing in uh, Tortona, um, aptly named the Milan Tortona. Uh, for our position in the caravan, a random drawing took place. How random? I don't know. 
out of the 32 teams in the race, uh, we'd be in spot number 30. I never saw any of the race except for the brief moment uh, we cut the course uh, at breakneck speeds to get ahead of the race to hand up a water bottle to George, who was in uh, an early breakaway. We almost took out an elderly lady right outside the gate to her house. Uh, it was a close call, yes. Welcome to life in the race caravan. The skill it takes for a director to drive in a race caravan takes a mix of cognitive and motor reflexes that most people just do not possess. I once worked with a director who handed a racer a water bottle out the window um, of the follow vehicle while taking on, talking on two phones, yes, one in each ear, and talking to the racer about race strategy. He was talking to him about race strategy on an upcoming climb and maneuvering around other cars, falling back um, with other racers falling back to get uh, bottles from their respective cars as well. Although it was a brief moment when all of this was happening simultaneously, it was amazing. He didn't even seem, seem stressed about it, but I was. So the next race, a few, few days later, was stage one of the Setamana Bergamasca. I remember following Yuri to the start at breakneck speed through the narrow streets and roundabouts, trying to do my best not to lose him. He drove fast and I didn't slow down and, and didn't slow down for me, even often passing dangerously, leaving me little choice but to do the same. It was intense to say the least. I remember being relieved when we finally make it to the start, start area. After we'd parked, we unload the bikes and get the racers ready for the bottles and last minute with bottles, get the racers ready with last minute adjustments, hopefully not too much. And I don't think there were too many that day. Uh, then we'd get to the caravan vehicle into position and wait for the start. Um, Italy, uh, in Italy, the race never started on time in all my trips to Italy. In Germany and Switzerland, it always started precisely on time. The first day at the Bergamasco was no exception. When Yuri and I were ready at, with the race vehicle at the start, he looked at me and he said, Matt, come on, let's go. When we left the van... We left the van and stepped into a coffee coffee shop right next to the, the start that was filled with race staff, all getting in one last swig of coffee in, from an espresso for most of them. That looks like they were what they were drinking. These were large Italian motorcycle policemen drinking tiny, drinking out of tiny espresso cups, laughing and talking loudly. They were readying themselves for a wet day on course. Yes, it was rainy and cold outside, but these guys didn't seem to care. They were ready. This wasn't their first bike race. That was obvious. No sooner than I took a sip of my espresso, a whistle blew outside and Yuri looked at me and smiled and said, Matt, finish, come we go. So we did, and I'm sure within two minutes that place was empty. It was a circuit race with a, with a decent climb about halfway around, and it was crazy. So wet and cold. Then the poop hit the fan. Freddy Rodriguez dropped back. We opened the window and he yelled, my gears are slipping. I hung out the window but couldn't tell what was wrong. Whatever was wrong seemed intermittent. In the end, it turns out it was a, it was a free hub body failing, sometimes engaging, then not. Freddie finished in the field that day, that day when the race was done. I remember while loading the bikes, I'd take off the front wheel to hand it up 
to put it up on top of the roof rack on top of the van. I lifted one bike's front, front end up with the rear wheel still on the ground and the water gushed out of the frame drain holes in the chainstay. It didn't stop for a while. Like I said, it was a wet race. Nine more days of this, less rain, but crazy nonetheless. I learned a lot on that first European trip, trial by fire. When I was home in Colorado, I felt like I had grown as a mechanic faster than I would if I had just been working in my comfortable shop with all my props, lighting, dry, warm workspaces. But when I got home, I found myself driving at first like I was still in Italy, following Yuri to the race or hotel or airport. And I'd catch myself and slow down, being glad to be home, but ready for the next adventure. And so that's our show for this week for our first Bicycle Mechanics podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Bicycle Mechanics podcast. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, grievances, you can email me at the Bicycle Mechanics podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, have fun.